Welcome to Who Knew. We are fans of the current series of Doctor Who, and here we discuss our likes, dislikes, and insights into the modern regeneration of this show. Subscribe, review, and listen to us on iTunes and Stitcher, or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash whonewpodcast. All our episodes are on whonewpodcast.com. You can leave comments there, or email us at whonewpodcast at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram and Twitter account. Tweet at us at whonewpodcast. And find us on Facebook. Today we're taking a quick trip in the TARDIS with Classic Who. Today it's Who Classic. Today's Classic Who episode is the third serial of the first season of Doctor Who, Edge of Destruction. When all aboard the TARDIS are mysteriously knocked unconscious, can the Doctor figure out what happened before they turn on each other or are killed? The first Doctor is played by William Hartnell. Susan Foreman, his granddaughter, is played by Carol Ann Ford. Her teachers, Barbara Wright and Ian Chesterton are played by Jacqueline Hill and William Russell. The first episode was directed by Richard Martin, and the second episode, Brink of Disaster, is directed by Frank Cox. These episodes are written by David Whitaker, and they originally aired on the 8th and the 15th of February, 1964. Hi, this is Eugene. Let's introduce ourselves. Hey, this is Josh. Hi, this is Kelsey. This is Brian. Hi, this is Frank. Hey, this is Heather. Hello, this is Auburn. While traveling in the TARDIS, the Doctor and his companions are knocked unconscious by an energy surge. Barbara and Susan wake up, and Susan gets a wave of pain in her head when she approaches the console. But it subsides as she moves away. They find the Doctor with a cut on his head, and Susan goes to get some water and bandages. The water dispensing machine indicates it is empty, but then produces a packet of water. Ian is waking up when Susan notices the TARDIS doors are slightly open. She says this is all terribly wrong and is afraid something has entered the ship. Barbara bandages the doctor's head while Ian checks on the doors, which close as he approaches, only to open again when he moves away. Susan goes to check the door controls on the console but falls unconscious in pain. Barbara ends to a waking doctor while Ian carries Susan to her bed. Ian also sees the dispensing machine says it's empty as it dispenses water. When he returns to the bedroom, Susan lunges at him with a pair of scissors. She tries to gain control of herself but freaks, stabs the bed multiple times, and faints. Yeah, all that happened. But yeah, but where to start? Uh, yeah, I, I, I will say this. I was quite intrigued from the beginning, but I went from, over the course of the show, I went from, oh, what is happening to what is happening? <laughs> Ditto. Because I, I was actually quite intrigued, like I said, and and like, oh, what does that mean? Like, what's and, and what and the the vibe that it had of like a very slow, drawn out play, like whether or not that was just a sign of the times or the low budget, um, it really drew me in. And, and being that it was a black and white, um, it made it a little bit more mysterious. So I, I was quite into it at first, and then I thought, well, if I didn't understand something, I was like, well, we'll figure it out. I guess I'll find out what that means later little did i know we wouldn't i was gonna say there's some production stuff of why this feels different do we want to go into that now but what feels different than what other classic who modern who a little bit of both because um let me let me just give you some background on what happened so far so we had this is the first season and we had the unearthly child which that serial ran for i think four 
four episodes. Yeah, I think so. And then after that, or that one has to do with a um, like they go back to primitive times with cavemen, I believe. And that, that's and also then, the pilot. So this is where you see Ian and Barbara entering the TARDIS for the first time, and the Doctor taking them off of Earth, and then they go to prehistoric time. So th which episode, in order of airing, which one is it? Okay, this is the third serial in the first season. So the first serial is The Unearthly Child, which uh, introduces all the people we see here, which is Susan, the granddaughter, Barbara and Ian are her teachers in school, and they think something's off with Susan, so they go and find out where she lives, and then they get introduced to the Doctor and the TARDIS, and then they, they travel. So is this idea of a Time Lord thing not a thing yet then? Are they... No. All they know right now is that he's an alien. Uh, they th Yeah, they know he's an alien and this is the spaceship he's in. But if she's his granddaughter, this is, this is what I was curious about. So is she Gallifreyan? Yes. And do they explain that? No, because the term Gallifreyan isn't a thing yet. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so at the moment of this episode, production-wise, is he supposed to be an alien? Yes. And she's supposed to be his granddaughter, so is she supposed to be an alien? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And that is that addressed yet? Yes. yes. Okay. So her teacher, but she's on Earth because her teachers are human people on Earth. Yeah, the Correct. doctor was studying Earth for a little bit for a couple months, and she signed up to go to school. Gotcha. And she was right. acting weird because, you know, she's not from Earth. And Barbara and Ian were, like, worried, so they followed her, got into the TARDIS, and the doctor took off. Gotcha. Well, that's very interesting. In the second serial, they must have gone to Scarrow because yeah. they mention yeah, it. Right, right. Yes, you're right. So after the Unearthly Child, which is which is four episodes, the next serial is The Daleks, which is seven episodes, and they're basically introduced to the classic nemesis of the Daleks on Scarrow, and this is the first origin story of the Daleks, which is changed by Genesis of the Daleks. And then after this, we get Edge of Destruction, which is only two episodes, because they had to fill, I think it's, um, the Daleks went over budget, and then the next serial was supposed to be Marco Polo, which was heavy on costuming and period dress. So that took some time, so they needed to fill in the gap or give the production crew more time for Marco Polo. So that's when the, uh, Whitaker was charged with writing just two episodes. So that's why this feels a little different. I agree with Josh, though, that um, even though they didn't go outside and nothing really happened, I was really intrigued at first because it reminded me of The Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was really excited to kind of watch things unravel and then I don't I don't know how I felt about the unraveling <laughs> eventually but in the beginning I had really high expectations because I was kind of expecting like a Twilight Zone type episode yeah like like a traditional bottle episode mm -hmm. plus I wasn't familiar with his personality so he was acting kind of weird and giving shifty looks uh, so I I assumed and they were in that he was being his mind was being taken over because they were insinuating that that was a thing mm-hmm Something was inside one of them. All of them were distrustful of each other. Right. And I didn't know, but I didn't know even their personalities. Like, is that how that person is acting when they're distrustful and things like that? Especially Susan was just being very off-putting. And I didn't know if that was how she was before or if this was different than her normal character. Well, so, I have a question about Susan. Um, how old is she supposed to be? High school <laughs> Same age. Question. High school? 
16. High school. High school. Like 16 or 17. Okay, but she's not, like, the actor playing her is not 16 or 17. She looks 26. Well, yeah, that's the way it always used to be. The way Hollywood is, yeah. 90210. I mean, even Beverly Hills 90210, they weren't that age. Yeah. Everybody in Greece was in their 30s. True. But I didn't see a 16-year-old. I saw an adult woman who was acting over the top. Trying to stab people. No big deal. <laughs> yeah, and I was assuming it was because she was being taken over by an alien force. Me too. It. So it was really Susan who was stabbing? or the, the, All the characters are messed up in the head when they got knocked out. Okay. They all came back to various stages of consciousness at different times. And so Barbara got hit really hard because she was, when you first see them, Barbara's leaning over the console. So she's getting the full dose of the pain and all that kind of stuff. That's why she's later on for longer than everybody else. But, but, you know, Barbara doesn't stab things. Ian doesn't choke people. You mean Susan was leaning over the console, the console, right? And they got knocked unconscious in the beginning. Yeah. Everybody fell to the floor, but Susan fell over the console itself. Right. You said Barbara before, so I wanted to make sure. Yeah. I think it was right. Barbara. No. Well, that's interesting because I didn't even see Barbara, and she's the one who comes to first. Yeah. And she walks in to see what everybody, what, what happened, and sees everybody knocked unconscious or beginning to stir. So a little bit more about Susan is that she's typically the archetype of the damsel in distress type of character. She's all Her job to me from the episodes I've seen is to get in peril and then to scream. Because <laughs> that's what she does a lot. And I don't, and I'm just giving that objectively, like there's nothing wrong with it. That's just what the time was. And she is in high school because she goes to Cole Hill School, which will come back later with uh, Clara and Danny. The, that's the school that they're, they're teaching at. That's cool. So, also with Ace. Yeah. And, and the uh, Seventh Doctor, they go to Cole Hill. If you guys remember the Seventh Doctor podcast that we did, and um, he's it takes place in London, and it takes place outside a junkyard. That junkyard is where Ian and Barbara found the TARDIS. Oh. I did like the idea of the bandages, having the medication inside the bandage, and as it changes color and loses it, just become white, you know, that the wound is now healed. Yeah, and I thought that was interesting, too, to, to like, track how out of it the doctor was. Like, Yeah. Uh, because I kept thinking, like, oh, is he going to snap into it and know what's going on? He never so, really did. Yeah, he never really did. He said, no. well, you solved this, didn't you, at the very end? <laughs> Thank and God then, somebody he, did. And I started to jump ahead, but when, yeah, exactly, when he's saying, you solved all these things, and I'm sitting here like, what did, what did she say? What? <laughs> like, like, I know a couple things that she's... Like, none of the pieces they seem to have come... I'm, I still have questions. We'll get to them. Also, since this is, this is the first time we're doing an episode with the first Doctor, he is very different from the other Doctors. You know, he's this is new. It, nothing was set yet. They didn't have any plan. They were just making it up. And, and William Hartnell was playing him more as a gruff old man. Like a grandfather grandfather well also he, he it was for me the more shocking thing and i think josh probably feels the same way is that he just wasn't brilliant the way that yeah. we always think yeah. of the doctor yeah so another thing that i think is speaking to the way you guys are feeling about the first doctor is that is that uh william hartnell is significantly let, let's just say older than other doctors have been and he had um, kind of a problem with all these lines that they were giving him. Uh, so what William Russell, who plays Ian, would do is he would give kind of the difficult stuff, the, like the more um, tongue-twisty things, the science speak. 
he would kind of split up those lines that were written for the doctor amongst the cast, so then the doctor could just go, hmm, yes, that's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, he did fl He flubbed the title of the episode. Yeah, the second yeah. part. He also, he also calls, because he, he normally says Chesterton when he's talking to Ian, calls him by his last name. He called him Charto. <laughs> I did appreciate how it really felt like a play. Like when they flubbed, they just kept going. They didn't worry about yeah. editing. And that's because of the um, the way that video was done at the time. There was no second takes or editing, or there was they didn't have the time for post production. Right. But I I felt it gave it kind of a quaintness. And um, yeah. In 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 opposition to that, though, usually what you don't see in productions this low they did a and i remember talking about this on other classic who's the compositions and the cinematography choices uh, like the photography wasn't all that great but the cinematography i felt was really cool people there was people in the foreground and background there's one bit where susan was hiding behind them and there was a lot of nice compositions and the way things were framed and it gave it a lot of drama and um uh cin cin cinema cinematic uh dynamicness yeah there's one shot where i think it's Barbara but it's like it's over Barbara's shoulder looking past the console up to the monitor and that was like wow they, that, that one got me where it was like that's a must have been a difficult shot for them to get because you're looking the opposite direction in the TARDIS than you normally do yeah it was funny because this is early stuff and we're watching something that was made for like tube TVs I don't know how this fits in but it felt as if the soft focus kind of fit the narrative that they were telling. Yeah. Even though it didn't really, even though it didn't really let up, because you know they shot this way back when. And so the the plot was just as clear as the picture. A little. Bit, yes. <laughs> there was the shadow when Susan was holding the knife. And the mm -hmm. shadow behind it was a great shot of just her, her silhouette holding the knife, and that's again got me a lot of that Twilight Zone feel right before she starts stabbing the bed. But, I mean, she does overact in a lot, but I think she really does well in acting unconscious. I know that sounds strange, but when she's <laughs> on the bed, she really was totally lifeless. I mean, it was. I thought she did really well with that, trying to get her in there and moving her around. It's funny. I actually just played it right at that part, and it's 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 pretty good. <laughs> yeah, because that shot where it just goes to her with the scissors, her hair is just so up, yeah. and she, it looks great on her in the black and white. You know, the contrast, and then the camera slightly moves as if they're moving to get another frame. And I think that is unintentional, but it adds to the uneasiness of that scene where she has the scissors in her hand. Um, I also thought the the cutaway shots were interesting, and I I did surmise that that was because of the camera movement, having to choreograph where all the cameras are, depending on what part of the the stage is going to be played next. Like some of yeah. those cutaways were, I'm thinking particularly when the doors open is really weird. The the clock insert is also really weird. Um, so while, yes, I do like the staginess and the cinematography of having to really load the frame with all of your characters, foreground, midground, and background, sometimes it, it, particular compositions didn't work for me. Story-wise, it was hard to tell what was happening. The first time that they see that the doors are open, I didn't see doors that were open. I yeah. saw a weird vase thing, yeah. which turned out to be a pillar. 
Yeah. And then I, I saw a bunch of circles. That's what and, that was me too. I was so confused. Yeah. I was like, "What are you freaking? Out? I don't see anything." Right. My- and then, and then, like a couple minutes later, when Chesterson walks towards the open doors, then it's a wide shot, and I can clearly see that there's doors opened. And I said to Auburn, "Why didn't they just use this as the insert?" And that's when he reminded me, like, "Oh no, they're editing live, and yeah. they, you know, they're putting the camera where they can." So that is how they edited it. They edited it live like an I Love Lucy show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I think that's why there there was no takes or anything like that. Like when they got something that they, they just kept going, you know, like that clock, I'm assuming was something we were supposed to even know what it is. The intention with the clock, though, is it's supposed to be melting and it's not clearly conveyed. Right. So, I mean, I didn't even know it was a clock. I mean, right. yeah. I kind of knew then, after a half a second or so, but yeah. And and then when they do the insert of the like the wristwatch, it's so out of focus. Yeah. That I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, I I enjoyed that this is the third story, and we get to see like what's in this thing that's bigger on the inside. Where in uh, the season we're covering, only the TARDIS console is huge. We don't get to see like where they sleep, where they take a nap where the wardrobe is, where the swimming pool is. You know, we always hear about the swimming pool. We never see it. So I like that this episode, these two episodes, we get to see certain things. I know at one point, Barbara actually says, like, I'm going to my room. And I immediately thought, like, ooh, I wonder what that looks like. (laughs) Yeah. I did like all the artifacts that the doctor has around the TARDIS, or they have around the TARDIS. Like, uh, we saw the clock with the melted face, but then there was also other, like that pillar, and then there was some other, like a, like a sundial or something in yeah. the background of some of the shots. And then that chair that I think Ian is unconscious in, at first I was like, that looks an awful lot like an old electric, electric chair. Like, <laughs> Did anyone else think that the bandages were condoms? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Susan well, was no, like, I, I didn't think they were, the but I, yeah. Oh, don't cut them. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's the 60s. They didn't have tears. You had yeah. to cut them. Oh. Right. Right. And then you tie a knot at the end. <laughs> Works oh. every time. 12% of the time. Uh, and then these um, things where they're get, the dispensers where they're getting the water and the milk. I was like, that's a primitive replicator. Yeah, I know. Yeah, there were some very early uh, ideas. Uh, and I will say, too, like uh, the theme song in this early incarnation of it. What year is this? This is um, 64. Yeah, I found it to be very innovative. Innovative. Yeah. Um, There's a reason that that theme song has stayed the same because of that. Yeah, and even just the the, the bass line in the beginning, um, it just, it it doesn't sound like anything that was going on at that time. No. Ron Grainer and Delia Derbyshire, they were very ahead of their time by creating that theme song. And that's why we thank them at the end of our episodes. Uh, Before we move on, just one last thing about the set. Uh, Did you love the fact that one wall is an actual wall and then the other wall is just a sheet? I didn't notice the sheet. Yeah. Um, You'll know when you see it. If you ever look again. um, Yeah, I'm looking now which wall. It has, uh, like, the round things are on the walls, but Mm -hmm. some of the round things are painted onto a sheet. They're not. Yes. Oh, I see it. (laughs) They are very reminiscent of the uh, the, the Ninth Doctor and and the early Tenth Doctors. They all have the round things. That's the round things. I know. You know what they are? No idea. 
<laughs> um, you're right. It is a backdrop that's painted. Yeah, it's just a painted hey. backdrop next to old me on wall. But that's what happened when it, things were in black and white. You could fool the eye more. Oh yeah. Ian returns to the console room with the scissors and tells them what happened. The doctor is in pain, but waking up. Barbara wants to know where they are, but the doctor doesn't know. Barbara wonders if something got into the ship, but the doctor dismisses her absurd ideas. Ian warns him to stay away from the console. So the doctor goes to check the fault locator in another room. While this is happening, Susan retrieves the scissors and sneaks back to her room. With her hair nicely coiffed. <laughs> <laughs> Ian looked like half later, Hugh Hefner. <laughs> Wasn't it a snuggie? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, Bar- yeah, no, they were like potato sacks. Yeah, Barbara Barbara and Susan sleep in snuggies, and Ian has a rope. Now, every time I heard them speak about the fault locator, it would always just ran together to be a faulticator. And so <laughs> I kept hearing every time it was a faulticator. I'd never heard fault locator until I put on the um, Subtit- subtitle. Uh, closed caption. Yeah. Well, it's hard to understand. It's not your fault, Decatur. <laughs> oh. I did like their English. Uh, it, it was not heavily accented. You know, today we get Scottish and Welsh. Like, was this more of the Queen's broadcast English back in the, the day? The BBC was very much, well, and they say they kind of still are, but they're very much like have a proper accent. And it really wasn't even so the whole country could understand. No, it was just the BBC saying, have a proper accent. It didn't even feel like British. It felt just like somebody speaking very clear English. They're also probably more stage actors at this point, and so have learned to over-enunciate a way that our modern television and film actors don't have to anymore. I would call it more of an old-timey accent than a British accent. <laughs> like, oh, they just sound old-timey, whatever that means. Oh, I guess they do They do sound a little bit British, but yeah, they, they sound like Catherine Hepburn. They sound like they're from Connecticut. <laughs> What's it called? Mid-Atlantic? Mid-Atlantic, yeah. I think we did get a little bit of doctor-like banter. Um, I wrote down a line of the doctor saying, where is less important than why, like around this time, Um, which reminded me a lot of like a modern take on the doctor. Yes. That was about... That, I was reaching for whatever connections to our modern (laughs) out of this doctor. All right, William, you got one. Good job. And when Barbara was saying that she thinks something was in the ship, that also reminded me a lot of the Twilight Zone, how they built it up in that sentence. And then the doctor just seems so pompous and sexist to just dismiss her. Yeah, but doesn't he also dis- dismiss Ian just as easily? Yes. Yeah, I think he he, say that's it. the thing. I, I, that's why I thought something was possessing him because it, because Susan seemed like she was possessed, and then this guy, and then he was choking him, and then the doctor kept poo pooing everything that they were saying, almost as if like they're gonna they're gonna spoil my plan. I had the same, Josh. You and I have the same brain watching this. I think. <laughs> Twilight Zone. The monsters are the monsters are on Main Street, Maple Street. Do on Maple Street. Yeah. The monsters are due on Maple Street. Yeah. Okay. Remember, this is for kids, and this is for ten-year-olds. So what they're trying to show is how the fear can then be distrust, and fear is the enemy because it turns out something so simple at the end. So to put it as what the story we're all expecting as adults now would not serve the purpose of what they're trying to portray. So you know, you got to still be nice and treat your friends with respect when something's going on. Don't let the fear overtake. You. It's something simple. 
Wow. That's not what I got. <laughs> they should have had to like a PSA at the end. Like, what did we learn today, kids? Right. But it's really affecting today with the whole COVID-19. How many people have just stockpiled everything and took it for themselves because they might need it in a couple months rather than looking out for other people and go, do you need it more? Do you, you know, like I'll only take the parts that I need for the immediate future, not a whole pallet worth of supplies. Uh, I, I do like that idea that is, you mentioned, uh, maybe a red herring, is that it reminds me of the thing or who goes there Yeah. in that something has invaded some sort of facility and we don't know who's infected. Yeah. So that would have been kind of cool if, uh, pun intended, if uh, we would have seen that play out instead of how it does play out. Yeah. Barbara checks on Susan, knowing she has the scissors. Susan holds them threateningly and demands to know what has come aboard the TARDIS and why they want to keep it from her. As Barbara tries to reassure her, Susan struggles between attacking and letting go of the scissors. Barbara is able to pry them out of her grasp. Both are afraid something is hiding in the ship, possibly inside one of them. Ian tells them that the fault locator shows nothing wrong and the doctor is going to turn on the outside scanner. Susan is afraid and runs to stop him. At this point, I'm still, wow, this is all very interesting. I can't wait to find out what happened, what's <laughs> happening. Yeah, and, and that, well, that's why I think not to negate what Frank said, but they've laid all these seeds in here for it to be like the thing or there's some sort of invader. Yeah. I get my my I, point was that they never explain, and I I agree with you, Frank, with your explanation. But yeah. I don't think they sold. I thought I think you sold it better in one or two sentences than this whole episode did. Yeah, and so that's why I think that the things we're seeing as adult watchers are are reminiscent of other things we've seen. Yeah. So it feels like the conclusion should have led to right. a certain way. Yeah, we're we're watching this with with film educated brains. Right. Well, the other thing, too, is, and this is kind of the reason why Eugene brought this episode up for us to do the podcast. It does introduce a concept that we we know about 50 years later, and we'll get to it. They didn't sell it as well as they should, and if you were watching this cold, you wouldn't get it. But there's, I mean, there's a reason why we're doing this episode right now, um, around the time of the Doctor's Wife episode. Um, so, where was I going I have no clue. <laughs> oh, I don't it was it was because this all does have a reason. It's not explained very well, but it all does have a reason why it is happening and why it's happening in the certain way that it's happening. It's just called terrible. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't I don't have a problem with what I think is happening. They just didn't connect the dots well in the, no, story, in the script. They did not because because they only had two episodes to tell the story. And they also had a short time to write it <laughs> to get to fill it in. Like but there was so much like. Well, if it's my understanding, yeah, they they the their memory loss and and uh, the whole thing us thinking they're possessed is time is being sucked away from them, so their memories are being sucked away. Am, am I on the right track as everyone else? Yeah, it, it's like a bigger concept than I think they were prepared to execute. Yeah, yeah like she said, we are losing time, and then time was given back to us. So when they couldn't remember each other, it's because that time was taken away from them. It's yeah, and it's running out. Yeah, so. Till when? Yeah. Till what? With my modern understanding of Doctor Who, I I thought that when they kept referring to the machine trying to warn them that the TARDIS was affecting them mentally. I did read but that... either Wikipedia or Wiki TARDIS that Susan has had episodes where she is psychic or sensitive to things, so that's why it's affecting her more. Mm. And okay, and because of the two 
Time Lords was affecting them differently with the pain than it was the humans, but it was affecting all of them. Uh, and I like what's that. affecting I... them, I think, is the feeling of being trapped and going to die. That makes the stabbing the bed scene more poignant. Like I, I read that as she, she, the the, the will to stab. Ian, is it Ian or is it right. Yes. Yeah, she was overcoming that by yeah, by stabbing the yeah. bed. Yeah. yeah. Though I agree with that. So, but what made her, her violent to begin with? I don't understand why she would stab someone just because she didn't recognize them. She's fearful. There's something going on. It's an emotional thing, not a, a logical thing. Okay. Whatever hit nope. the head is affecting, I think, the emotion. Even though I don't know that's a part of the brain, but that's what I, I'm getting from this. That's why the doctor was so suspicious. It's like it's affecting emotions. Something's wrong. We're going to die. We can't leave. And please just flash out. It just seems that no one is properly reacting to it. And in the end, I mean, Barbara is very offended that the doctor is rude to her. But for some reason, nobody demands an apology for almost being stabbed or choked. She's mad. But I think the thing that she was mad at, the doctor was coherent when he said such horrible things, whereas Susan was out of her mind at the moment. Okay. And they know Susan, and they know that she is, does not act like this. So something is terribly wrong. Right. Somebody, she doesn't act like this, and she's to... Now that we understand that she's a child-ish. She's not responsible. That's why they don't think they need an uh, apology. Like, something is right. affecting you, and it's not you who is doing it. Fair enough. I think I look at this episode different than everyone else because I just take the fact that they're acting so strangely as they all have concussions. That's all I think it is. Susan has the word concussion, and it comes from, but then it's also tied to the console. You know, if you go near the console, you get stabbing pain. But they also, there was an explosion, and very Star Trek-like, they all fell to the floor because it was so shocking. There was so much shock. So to me, it's like they've all got concussions and they're all coming out of them at different points and different times. And it's just, that's how I look at it. I guess. I mean, yeah, I mean, the whole thing about getting closer to the console, too, felt very like, don't touch the floor, it's lava. <laughs> yeah, very kid uh, oriented. In the end, though, again, they don't sell it well. But in the end, it makes sense. Overall, I, I enjoy this story. I enjoy seeing these characters. I enjoy seeing the doctor and the environment. It's definitely like kind of enriching. Is that the right? Enriching. Definitely, it's definitely, it definitely enriches my Hoovian scope. Um, and uh, you, you know, I, I'm we're all dissecting the way the story is told in 1964. So I find I find this very charming, and I, I find the thing, the things that we're picking apart, I still find it charming. I'd, I'd like to go back to what Alburn was saying before and uh, Brian touched on, where the reason we're doing this episode is because this is kind of a throwaway episode because it's a filler in between two bigger serials, and they created something that the TARDIS is sentient and alive. And then when we come back to the revival with uh, Russell T. Davis, we, we get that indication that the TARDIS is sentient in uh, Boomtown, I think is the first time we get it yeah. in, uh, in 2005. I like that this was uh, had that back then. I didn't realize this, that was something that they had this, yeah. this far back. And, and even the, the fact where she said, like, or he said the energy from the TARDIS. He, did he even say the heart of the TARDIS? Did he say it's heart? No. No, I'm conflating the two so but he mentioned about the energy of, from the TARDIS is underneath it which uh, they obviously drew from for, for the you know the Russell T Davies uh, incarnation because uh, 
But not just that, not just the new version. It's, I think they built on all the classic Who as well, built on all this stuff. And Russell's was a progression of that. I guess I was pleased to see that that idea was this far back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was nice to see something geeky like that all the way back. Right. Oh, yeah. And then I think it's great. I also love the fact that this is the third story and the, the second story ever of Doctor Who is the Dalek. Yeah. I do think the woman who played uh, Barbara was the best actor out of everyone. I feel she kind of held the episode together. Yes. Oh, yeah. She really did. Yeah. <laughs> I felt kind of bad for her as as somebody who went to school for acting. And <laughs> I was like, this poor woman. <laughs> she is the glue holding this, I don't even know, soap opera. <laughs> It was. It was like a soap opera. Now that you, you know, once you mentioned that it was shot, uh, lot edited live. But her best scene and the whole best scene of the whole series is coming up next. Susan tells them that when she tried to touch the console earlier, there was a pain in the back of her head. The doctor says he must see what is outside the ship and tentatively activates the scanner. Nothing happens to him. The scanner shows a picture of London and the door is open to a large roar from outside. They close the doors and the picture changes to show the planet Quinnis, but they know that it is not outside either. The picture changes again to show the universe and then a bright blast. The Doctor accuses Ian and Barbara of sabotaging the ship to force him to return them to England. Barbara is angry at the accusation and lists all the times they've saved the Doctor's life. She turns to leave and sees a clock melting. Their watches are getting affected as well, and Barbara throws hers across the room. She breaks down and the Doctor gets drinks for them all. Barbara is still angry with him, but takes the drink and leaves. Ian passes out after drinking his. The Doctor drugs them all. <laughs> okay. Alright. I thought that scene that Barbara was just laying it into the doctor and reading the riot act was great. Yes. Especially from Barbara and not from Ian. Right. And that's where they mentioned the dollars. How about that time, you know, we saved... Because I think she does that thing where it's like she mentions one thing that viewers didn't see, and then she mentions one thing that the viewers did see. Yeah, I, I gotta say, I mean, even, even though there is a certain amount of... I don't want to say misogyny. There's a certain amount of unbalanced sexism throughout the, the early year classic Who. They always are making a point to put a spotlight on how women are marginalized and they shouldn't be. But they also I, just I, have her break down right after that. Exactly. Well, but it's it's it's... Because it's, I just didn't like it. Because because no. it's still in the sixties. Yeah, it's kind of like yeah. it's like it's almost like we shouldn't marginalize women, but uh, they still are difficult. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. We'll throw you out, you know, own ladies. There you go. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of like like. Give, why don't you give them a give, give them a shot? You know. What, when it's needed and some of it's uh, also pretty subtle too because there's one point where it's like oh you know like ian if ian figures something out you're so smart and if barbara figures something out wow you used your intuition you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Women, women are blessed with intuition whereas <laughs> men are blessed with intelligence <laughs> It's just kind of sad. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, obviously, she she's kind of the lead of this whole, or even more than the doctor. Yes. Because he's even, you know, that he goes away, he comes out with, I mean, obviously coming out with tea, but with, like, after this big fight, he's like, oh, have, have a drink. And it was obvious that he was going to Cosby them. <laughs> <laughs> it was weird to see the doctor just suddenly shift and bring out a tray of drinks. I'm like, don't you want to see him drink out of the drink he's giving you first? Yeah, I was you waiting know? to see that. I was waiting to see yeah. him do it. And see, these, these are certain things that I'm thinking of, again, as a modern, educated yeah. viewer of things. There, there's like certain expectations with a certain, yeah. I guess, hallmarks 
Yeah. I don't think Barbara drank it. <laughs> For me, it just seemed like Barbara's too smart. She just poured it into the plant or something and went through the bed. And the plant went meow. <laughs> <laughs> With that sound effect. Yeah. Right. <laughs> women's intuition told mm-hmm. me not to drink it the next time we see barbara she's lying in bed awake upset and susan is the one who like tries to make her feel better by saying i'm sorry what my grandfather said to you try to understand um Oliver and i had to watch this twice because we were so confused the first time through <laughs> Um, and I did notice there are two cups on top of the water dispenser, um, right? Because after he hands out the drinks, Ian follows the doctor into the next room and they have a, right? Yep. Yes, they have a conversation with Susan lurking in the background. So maybe Susan and Barbara just set their cups there instead of drinking them. Yeah, or they maybe. drink well, them and set them there. You don't see Barbara drink it. She walks off screen. Yeah, she walks off screen, puts it in that plant also off screen. <laughs> it dies off screen. <laughs> Can we talk about the reaction to the clock? Because that really sold it for me. Yeah. Barbara's reaction? Go for it. Barbara and then Susan also Susan, yes. screams at the clock. Like, they both see the clock, and then they just start screaming at it. And then, I mean, Barbara throws her watch. Like, what is the point of that? Like, that, that seemed a little bit out of character for her after we've seen her be a little more intelligent. Well, is this a is this clock uh, a prop that we see in the previous episodes? I don't recall, but I don't think it is just because it's like in the middle of the room almost. Right, because I thought if this was something we were familiar with when we saw it was all jacked, then we would be like, oh my God, the clock is jacked. Instead, I saw something that I, I was like, what is that, a clock? Yeah, yeah. yeah. on my exactly. wrist was mutating, I might throw it too. They, were re- they react to it like it's... With this all-knowing, oh my god, this is terrible. We (laughs) are doomed. My other question for this uh, sequence was the planet, uh, the second planet that we saw, or the second photo that we saw, they were like, it's the planet, what, Quinnis? Quinnis. Was that from a previous series? No. Just a random Not that I know of. Yeah. Just one of those things where it's uh, an adventure that we do not see, I think. Okay. And it seemed like that was only Susan and the doctor. I don't think the other companions were part of that. It seemed like we've been doing this before coming to Earth. They hadn't gone to Klom yet. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny when they, they turn on the monitors and you see those things. I think the effect was supposed to be more, let's just say live, like a video instead of a photograph. And I I don't know if Susan says it, at, or the doctor says it at this point. That can't be what's outside of the ship. That's a photograph. I go, yes, that's clearly a photograph. <laughs> and then the second one, Susan, is the one that says, that's also a photograph. I'm like, yes, you guys are both correct. Those are photographs. Those are inserts. <laughs> but remember that the machine has memory of their tricks. So it takes snapshots. We're, we're seeing this like a hundred times more clear than it was meant to be seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm and I'm coming. I'm saying that I'm coming from it from a modern viewer that I'm used to that being like a video, a live video. Mm. Every time you know Matt Smith pulls over that thing and it's yeah. like a TV, so that's when I think of when I when I see them looking at things like this. Well, the fun part is later on when they're trying to show outside, they actually are showing a photograph, but they're going, "No, that's outside." <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. It's budget. It's all budget and time. 
The doctor is at the console when Ian suddenly tries to strangle him. Ian fights the desire to kill the doctor and faints. This is the proof the doctor needs to throw them off the ship. The danger signal blares and the fault locator shows everything is wrong. Ian tries to strangle Barbara while insisting that the TARDIS controls are alive before fainting again. The doctor realizes that the ship is going to disintegrate. He doesn't know why, but Barbara and Ian couldn't be the cause of it. The danger signal is going off every 15 seconds, which gives them a way to measure time. The doctor explains that the center column of the console sits above the heart of the TARDIS. Its movement is the TARDIS trying to release its power. If it does this without the other systems working, it will destroy them all. Okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't say hard though, right? Or does he? He says like the power source or... Yeah. But we all know it's the heart of the TARDIS, though. Right. Right. I'm a modern viewer. He also doesn't call it the TARDIS. He keeps referring to it as his machine, which I thought was, as a new Who viewer, was odd to me. Like, I I don't know... Do they even say TARDIS? They do once. Once, okay. Barbara does, I think. The TARDIS! Um, when they're talking about this uh, danger signal every 15 seconds, it, it's weird how that sound is so present. I wish they would have uh, cut back on that. And um, I, I expected it to be the cloister bell, because mm-hmm. that's always the indicator that something's wrong. I do like that a lot better than the foghorn. And um, checking back on it, I think it is, they do mention that it is the heart of the TARDIS. Hmm. I couldn't remember if that was something... I just, I think my brain confused itself. There was a really good line that the doctor gave at this point as well, that rash actions are worse than no action at all. Mm. I thought that was a good line. That's a good lesson. So Frank, that quote of the doc, that line of the doctor always reminds me of evil persists when good men do nothing. But actually those two phrases kind of compete with each other. I, I know, but I'm just saying it reminds me of that. Oh. I'm not saying that they're the same. Sorry. Yeah. Just to clear that up. I see that. That conflict in thinking gives me a rash. Oh, God. I did like that they had Susan being smart. I mean, Barbara's like, you don't have a watch. Nothing's working. How did you know how many I counted? It's like, oh, yeah. 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 (laughs) It's just, you know, I liked it that she just did it. But then I do like that right after that. It's like, oh, that's a good idea. Go count again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing I didn't understand was why Ian tried to strangle Barbara. Was he just in a strangling mood and just like any neck that was close? That sounds as good as an explanation as any. (laughs) But before, we gave Susan the excuse of being a Time Lord uh, and being more strongly affected, but Ian is just a psychopath? I don't know. Yeah, it's the... Gallifreyan sleeping drugs <laughs> has, has some after effects. <laughs> it's the one thing to think that someone's a saboteur, and it's another thing to like immediately just want to kill them, and then <laughs> never yeah. mention. Once you're in your right state of mind, never mention. Oh, sorry, I was going to kill you. That's why Barbara had yeah. such a chip on her shoulder, and why she was holding that grudge. She feels yeah. well, uh, he, so. he apologizes to her later, but nope, mm. nope. He yeah, does doesn't. Not. He- at the very he end. says, why won't you forgive me? Well, that's the 1964 uh, octogenarian <laughs> way of saying. Yeah, I mean, he does say we all owe you our lives, which is not an apology, but it's yeah. 
I guess that's the best. Hey, even Fonzie couldn't say it. So I'm sorry. Oh my God, you're right. Wow. And he was the coolest. But he gave her something more than a bug. He gave her respect finally. I think he probably could have done with both, but. <laughs> yeah. I also gave him all a coke and a smile. You're right. Barbara believes that everything that has happened must be clues. The water dispenser showing empty when it wasn't, the clock melting so they would notice time, and the area around the scanner being the only part of the console that they could touch. All of this and the doors and images are the ship's way of warning them. The doctor deduces they must have wound up at the beginning of time. Ian asks where they were headed before all this began, and the doctor says they were on Scaro. He used the fast return switch to get them back to present-day England, but they overshot their time. Examining the controls, the doctor finds the switch is stuck, constantly sending them back in time. He fixes the switch, and the TARDIS is free to travel again. Ta-da! Uh, the, the writing of the fast return was uh, handwritten. With like a Sharpie? Yeah, there's several, there's several um, myths, rumors about what happened. Carol Ann Ford says that when her and William Hartnell were rehearsing, they wrote that on the console so that William Hartnell would know where to point to and act around so that he constantly would go to the same switch. And then they, they thought that the set dressing people would go in and paint over that. That's her version. <laughs> Why did they cast this ancient man? Was, was there no one else in England? You want to know something? He is younger than Peter Capaldi when Capaldi took over. Yeah, but that's that's 1964 50s. 50-something <laughs> uh, years old. Not, uh... <laughs> I don't think he was like, famous, but he was a character actor. And... So during this time, uh, William Hartnell had stopped getting acting gigs. I think the last thing he did was some uh, army army show. I think the army game, and then after that, he uh, he was thankful to be acting again. It kind of revived him. What do you call, what would you call it? Emotionally. <sighs> wow, Eugene, you made me feel like an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was on the brink of suicide. <laughs> Go watch an adventure on um, time and space. Very sad. And that's where I'm coming from, is watching that docudrama. And, I actually have uh, seen I'm, part of it. And it really which just docudrama. The one that um Adventure in Time and Space. Filch plays when Filch plays William Hartnell. Yeah. Walter Frey plays the first doctor. Anyway, I I'm just looking through Wikipedia real quick. Uh, Verdi Lambert was the one to offer William Hartnell the title role, although Hartnell was initially uncertain about accepting the part. It was pitched to him as a children's series. He later revealed that he took the role because it led him away from the gruff military parts he had been typecasted as. And that he had he had two grandchildren of his own, so he came to relish uh, particularly the attention and affection that playing the character brought him from children. Just messed up kids. Sorry. Well, this this is a post World War II, so the country or the world was doing some healing. I also noticed that. Sorry, just jump ahead, but in the credits, he plays the role of Doctor Dot Who. Yes, that's how it always was in the um, classic Who. That makes me feel like such a hypocrite. Every time at work, somebody who's not me writes Dr. Who. I'm always like. Yeah. Would you like it if someone put abbreviated your name and put a dot? <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, this is where oh. Barb and Mark she is, and she puts together all of the clues of the TARDIS has a built-in defense, and that's what's been going. I didn't get the pictures showing in order of their journey, realizing that it was going back. Yeah. Because it was England where they picked up Barbara and Ian. And before that was the planet that only the Doctor and Susan went to. And then before that, it was like the start of the planet and then floating with the Big Bang. Yeah, I didn't get that either. I just, yeah, I thought she was, yeah. And knowing that it was supposed to be in reverse, that makes more sense. The um, Barbara was the one that was putting the dots together and the doctor was dismissing that he was saying even when she was like oh there's something about the scanner maybe you know we should look at the scanner again and he's like yeah why don't you two women go stand over by the doors and when the doors open um tell me what you see and then he turns to ian he's like um i'd lied we're all going to be dead in five minutes and they won't know that because i've sent them off to do this i guess as a modern viewer i'm used to seeing happen is the doctor being like okay let's follow up on that theory barbara and that just that isn't what happened she her theory was dismissed and then and it was what's um I thought that that was why we are watching this episode was the point that the the doctor lies and I was like if that's why we're watching this episode oh <laughs> but I, I'm glad that uh, you chose this for the other reason that you know this is the right this is of the TARDIS being sentient yeah. and, we, and we haven't done a first doctor episode so we thought this was the best time to introduce him to you guys also, in 1964, what the doctor does wouldn't have been considered lying. It would have been... Um, a courtesy? A courtesy, yeah. It would have been, you know, don't let the women folk get worried. And, you know, like you would treat a child. And we, the men folk, can handle the truth. But the audience wouldn't think that was bad in 64. Audience would expect that. Mm -hmm. It's just... But it's just weird that it comes right after she's put all these pieces together and is still in the process of trying to help the doctor solve the issue. I think it's an interesting it's an interesting sociological point of view of how the writing is writing this woman character very uh, uh, as a very rich character, but the writing is also still being instilled with what Brian is talking about in the 1964 values. It's it's an interesting. Uh, anthropological look at it i mean she's she's very smart but they are in no way equal which makes no sense because he sends susan and barbara to go look at the door it's not about yeah, yeah. right look can't handle it yeah. wouldn't yeah. be able to handle it and they would be so upset or or the doctor is doing it as a kindness right mm -hmm. either way it's the man being in control. Mm -hmm. because yeah. he also tells ian the the patriarch yeah he tells Ian, mm -hmm. like the men folk will dutifully carry on and then everything blows would, up and the women will be like we could have fixed it what i think what would have made this better for me is that if he sent ian and barbara to the door and then confided in susan because that makes more sense character bait character wise yeah. is that we're both gallifreyan yeah. we can solve this where humans can't yeah but i did like the ending where it was this is how a spring works <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Explaining it to Susan was, I was getting like third party humiliation embarrassment from watching that. It was, that was weird. Oh, well, that was just for like, the kids we are, watching. Yeah, that was for the kids. 
Yeah, it's for the kids. Something simple. This is how you can fix it. <laughs> but the whole episode is like kind of complicated, and then all of a sudden we get our Sesame yeah. Street moment. I don't. Uh, we get we get to be we, we get all this complicated plots, and then we get ex- thoroughly explained uh, how to work a button. Yeah, but it's <laughs> <Isn't that> <laughs> GI Joe at the end of every episode. Yeah. Hey, this, what is it? And now right. you know, and knowing is half the battle. GI <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Joe. <laughs> I guess we only got a quarter of the battle in this episode. <laughs> you hadn't sent them away, could have just been explained once, but you know. Susan knew where the button was. That's near the scanner. Yeah. <laughs> He's like looking for it. That's I right. Well, it in the dark. I, yeah. It's right next to the scanner. <laughs> really? The set lighting isn't enough for you? We can see it. And the felt tip writing isn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, when when everything's all uh, solved, they do a great shot of uh, Hartnell as he he faces the other side of the console that we're not used to seeing. And to me, that's like as if if this was a sitcom or a stage play. That's where the audience would be, the orchestra pit. Mm-hmm. Like we we get that reverse shot, which which you don't see a lot of. When is this? At the end, when he's talking about the big uh, the Big Bang and then the dust and then that mm. his speech kind of coming together. His yeah, his his last speech and the thing. Soliloquy. The picture's a little darker, I think, because it's lit more backlit. Nobody else is on the set at that point. Hartnell has to do a big speech, and it's like just focus on him because it's gonna take a while. And everybody else is probably already at home by the time he got it completely right. And I think that's why the lighting's different and all that kind of, because it's not yeah. at the same It's gotten dark out. Yeah. Yeah, to hide the fact that you can see all the cameras and chairs and all the lighting. Is somebody equipment. probably holding up cue cards for him, too? I bet they were. But uh, he does a good job because, like I mentioned earlier, William Russell was trying to alleviate the hard lines for William Hartnell, but he delivers acting in, in that final speech and I thought that that was great and you can see him again as an actor Acting. even though what he's saying kind of doesn't make sense like physics wise okay. Hartnell sells it and he delivers he's like that's yeah. who I think of as the doctor mm-hmm. yeah that's a very doctor moment the doctor apologizes to Barbara and Ian at first Barbara does not accept it but later after a brief heart to heart does the TARDIS safely lands on a cold planet and the team goes out for a snowball fight. And in the snow, they find a giant's footprint. It's funny when she says, it looks like it belongs to a giant and they pan down. I thought it was going to be like three feet wide. It's like a big foot. <laughs> a tall person. A tall person. <laughs> a basketball player's foot. The new yeah, Andre the Giant. Yeah, exactly. Ooh, representing. Oh, look at that. I didn't even think. I didn't even notice. Subliminally. I think Barbara only accepts the doctor uh, semi-apology, not apology, after he offers her new clothes. Like, there's a wardrobe here, and here's some cold weather coats for you. <laughs> oh, that's right. He does. <laughs> she just realizes what he's capable of doing, how much he's able to apologize, and showing that he's like, no, I'm appreciative of you. But I guess that's what he's trying to do. We'll go with that. We're also British. Also, a little touchy feely back in the time period. It's also the end of the entire story, so it's a, like a sitcom. Everybody has to be happy, and, you know. She looked very nice in that coat, so. <laughs> <laughs> and then Ian had a hand-me-down. Yeah. 
Ian was like Sherlock Holmes up in there. And he got it from... <laughs> yeah, Gilbert and Sullivan. It was cute. <laughs> I was like, is that the only prop you guys have in the prop room? Well, that's funny. I like that. It was. It was I, I, I like that they made mention of it. Because he's like, oh, it does feel like it would fit both Gilbert and Sullivan at the same time. Now, Eugene or, or anybody, was the next story about the giant that they found? Or is that just lost in history? Well, the next one is Marco Polo. So it does take place after that, and it's a um, past episode. So it's a period a period piece. Because yeah. they're like in the Himalayas. Okay. Oh, that's cool. not so what I thought of. Yeti or something? Marco Polo. Yeah, because um, it, um, they're picked up by Marco Polo's caravan on its way along the Silk Road to see an emperor, Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan. Mm. So Marco Polo is missing, at least on our... Uh... Yeah, Marco Polo is one of the lost episodes. Oh... So it is lost to history. Is it Planet Xanadu? <laughs> On roller skates? <laughs> yeah. So speaking of that, the Edge of Destruction episodes were both uh, recorded on 16 meter, millimeter tele recordings, and then both were recovered from negative prints discovered at BBC Enterprises in 1978. Wow. A tele recording is a film recording of something originally shot on another medium, usually videotape. So these were tele-recordings, meaning that these were sent out to the broadcasters to air for their uh, networks. Okay, so they had some sort of, like, the film is... They probably had a, a adjuster where the film would film... The film camera would film the television set in some in somehow. Uh, this is also the... I think the first and only full-length story featuring the Doctor and only his companions. And it's probably the smallest of the of any of Doctor Who's uh, cast four characters. Yeah. Really? Oh, I guess so. There was no real... There's nope. no villain. Mm-hmm. There's no villain character. The villain is the spring! <laughs> so there was an actual oh. technical malfunction that caused this whole thing to happen. Yeah. All right. The fast rewind was going constantly. Yeah. Oh, and the artist was right. throwing out all these things like, hey, you're gonna die. Pay attention. Figure yeah, see, I, I just thought when he was explaining the button thing, he explained how he fixed it. Not... What was what was going on? Josh, clearly, what went wrong. the button explanation was not clear enough for you. So you should maybe go back, give it a second view. Okay, sure. Just, just to make it, sure. It was like the flashlight was on the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was fun though. Like, good. I'm glad. I didn't. Oh, no, I, I enjoyed it. I think it kept everyone interested because they were trying so hard to figure out, yeah. like, what was going I, on. I gotta say, we make you know we make fun a lot of the faults of these earlier episodes, but uh, I'm I I expected these classic Who's to be a lot worse. I'm I've, I've enjoyed this all our trips in the tar- quick trips in the TARDIS is very much it's just uh, re- research wise because I thought they were going to be unwatchable. I would like to mention that this is my first classic Who episode. Ah, now, I have okay. seen bits and pieces because um, the BBC used to play it on TV and I would like just have it on in the background or something um, of like I think the fifth doctor maybe um, but this is the first time I've sat down and watched from beginning to end a full classic episode um, I know earlier we talked about the TARDIS having furniture and feeling more like a house and I didn't realize until Kelsey mentioned that but that is also like a throwback that this past season of Modern Who did where we had some other TARDISes that looked more like a house, even on the inside. 
So that's just more connections that the this last season really like they they went deep on connections to the original Doctor Who. Yeah. Okay. So I just wanted to say that this episode reminded me of one of my favorite season five episodes, which is Amy's Choice, uh, because of the problem being inside the TARDIS itself. Whereas Amy's Choice, that was the one with the Dream Lord, and it was like something that was inside like the TARDIS that was manipulating like the the dreams that people everyone was having and even though in that one we did go out into this other town um yeah i just i just wanted to mention that that this this episode reminded me of a uh current you know season five episode so i like the plot of this episode a lot i just wish i had under been able to understand everything that was happening when it was happening <laughs> well that's why we have a podcast help clear it up <laughs> i honestly think that the whole ending with the, it just being the switch getting stuck I, I do think it could have been a a good ending if it was just done differently mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah. like because it, it's almost like a bait and switch but in a oh that's kind of clever way except it wasn't done cleverly right yeah it goes along with you know uh, fear being the enemy that's that's right it's the ma- that's... monsters of maple street thing again like yeah it can be a very compelling story and you can go like it's just they just needed to find a different way for the punchline so to speak yeah you said it was a you know, good twist but it was a humor twist it was to be a three's company twist and there was all misunderstanding type of thing so I thought that was humorous because they both laughed at it and say, you know, I'm becoming a little daft old man. Maybe they didn't laugh enough, though. Like, maybe they all needed (laughs) to look at each other like, oh, my God, we almost killed each other. (laughs) Yeah, because it is shot differently. Like we mentioned, stage play rather than like a three camera setup for a sitcom or a drama. Yeah, we chose uh, Edge of Destruction because it ties in with the sentience of the TARDIS and how... The doctor's wife kind of brings that to a whole new level. Yes. That wraps up Edge of Destruction. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time when the future becomes the present. You've just listened to an episode of Who Knew? Our wonderful theme music is by Michael Grady. Find him on Facebook at The Universe Explodes. All our episodes are engineered by Auburn. You can find him at auburnbinkley.com. You can also find this show in several places. Follow us on Twitter at Who Knew Podcast. Subscribe, review, and listen to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash whonewpodcast. All our episodes are on whonewpodcast.com. Visit our Facebook page. Please leave comments, reviews, and click like to help support Who New Podcast. To listen to our show on your Amazon Echo device, enable the AnyPod podcast skill. Ask AnyPod to play the Who New Podcast. This podcast is inspired by Doctor Who. The longest-running sci-fi show in history. And especially the revival, spearheaded by Russell T. Davis. Thanks to Russell, Sidney Newman, Verity Lambert, Ron Grainer, Delia Derbyshire, and all those involved in the adventures of our favorite Time Lord. Your work continues to inspire and entertain. Well, it was recording. I don't know how he, he just, was. He just I disappeared. Tell to refresh. Refresh which? His he's doing exactly or... what he's been asked to do. Everybody calm down. Has this episode taught us nothing? <laughs> it's just the switch, guys. Oh, no, no. Heather, put down those scissors. Ah! Oh, my cat just freaked out. I'm sorry. All right, I think you're back, Eugene. Can you hear us? Alfred, stop choking me. Okay, there, finally went up. Oh, now I can hear you. you. That was so weird.
Okay, so before this gets any more screwy. Rolling, rolling, rolling. Yeah, we're All only right, 43 first... minutes into our scheduled start time. <laughs> well, I, fa I factored in the uh, uh, troubleshooting. I know, I'm just being a smart aleck. <laughs> it's my role in the group, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, they say, Ian looks at it and he says, here. Very slowly. Doctor. I thought he had, it only moved when the power was on. Yes, but the heart of the machine is under the column. <laughs> Somebody give him a perfect, Josh. Excellent rendition. Bow, Josh. 